0: New Orleans, 2012. Bruce Kachera drove to an address someone had given him that didn't exist. Standing in the parking lot where the address should have been, he was shot and killed. Questions around his murder have been met with silence. But this story is about more than violent crime. It's about motive and a series of events that have never been fully investigated until now. Binge CounterClock, Season 5. And welcome to the Center Clueless Podcast, the podcast that takes a day-by-day approach to politics. I'm your co-host, Billy Ray Bruton, and with me is... Eric
1: Serwell, schlubbist number two,
0: Uh, and also Hooper in the background. uh, Yeah, you're (laughs) fascinated by my dog in the background. He just annoys me. I love your dog, dude. I love the shit out of your dog, dude. It's the greatest thing ever. He's learned now that when I podcast, it's the best time for him to be a pain in the ass, like all children, exactly, exactly, and he thinks it's and he thinks it's going to work, but he's slowly starting to figure out that I will look him directly in his beautiful brown eyes and go, "Fuck you," <laughs> and uh, I I love him, but I will I will beat him to death with my evil glares. <laughs> Jesus, I go, um, it,
1: it's taken what uh, less than a minute and thirty seconds for you to talk about beating your dog. That's good. I'm glad That's we right. That's right. We with my it. with
0: my glares, don't let anybody take that and run with it. I would never hit my dog, right. but I will. But I will demolish him with no, no, my evil glances.
1: You know what's great is whenever you talk about the dog or being on a bed with you or all these, you get so stern in your conversation with me too. No, you no, know, they have they have they have time when they're allowed on the bed and time when they're off the bed. Exactly. And I'm like
0: okay. <laughs> yep, uh, it is. I've had to set boundaries with these two, but boundaries are very important, especially with basingis. Uh, so I have I have had to set those boundaries as a dog owner, and uh, you know, I'll look. I'll be honest. Sometimes at 2 a.m., I'm laying on the bed. Hooper will put one paw up on the bed, put poke his little head up. He's obviously longing and pleading with me, Dad, Dad. Can I be on the bed? And so. I'll just lean down to him. I'll put his little paw in mine. I'll look him directly in the face and I'll say, no, fuck off. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. And then guess what? He <laughs> goes right into the living room and goes right back to sleep. <laughs> Motherfucker is hardly traumatized by Dad, my not letting him on the bed. Daddy dearest, the Billy Ray years. Exactly. Uh, we're going to be talking, we're going to be talking later about parents who are afraid of their children. Um, I might be afraid of my dog.
1: Right. There you go.
0: Right. <laughs> um, well, welcome to another episode of Center Clueless. Um, you're going to hear us kind of bloviate for a little while, and then we get to our very exciting conversation with Dr. Astrid Hager, uh,
2: mm-hmm. which
0: uh, I am very excited about. I can't say I'm excited to do it since we actually just recorded it. So uh, we, we like to do things in reverse here.
1: Yeah, it makes it easier. Let's us warm up before we come in here and talk to you all uh, uh, freestyle. Um, no, I, I – I thought it was funny because I I Billy Ray sends me a task last night. It says, uh, hey, write this. Oh, right, you a know, writer introduction. I'm like, well, so then I had Chat GPT write the introduction, then I rewrote it, and then I asked Chat to clean up what I rewrote, and that's what you picked for me to use today, which I thought was hilarious. There's Look. my new my new writing flow is chat rewrite and then it's, summarize with chat I've become already
0: addicted. It's funny that you say that because about a week ago, I sent uh, the president of our board, I sent him a very like immediate message because I was working on a grant. They had changed some of the requirements, and I realized that I needed a strategic plan that had been approved by the board. Right. And so I, I emailed our, our, president, our president, I need this, and I need this by end of the day today. So what does he use? He uses chat GPT. <laughs> He creates this strategic plan. I can't believe I'm saying this out loud. Uh, right. And uh, and he sends it to me, and I'm like, you know, I mean, I had to make a lot of tweaks to it. Sure. But I was like, it's pretty damn good. It's a pretty right. damn good strategic right. plan.
1: Right. Like, I mean, and, and so here's the question. Does it really matter in cases like this? I don't think it matters. And it's just interesting because it the information – that I imparted about Dr. Hager later when we speak to her, um, it was accurate. It was accurate. Yeah. It was clear. I checked it right. Like I checked yep. some of the facts that it had said, and I and I went ahead and like I said, added some that I knew. But man, it 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 really. If the game of writing is to communicate to other human beings, I don't see a single problem with it. There are times where creativity is going to matter more, like in a novel or in or in a story or in a poem. Okay, I get it, right? Because you know poems aren't even when you when you write a poem, you're trying to get at an emotional response, not necessarily a cognitive response. so there may be some difference. But man, if I'm writing IT policy, or if we're writing a strategic plan and the, and the data is correct, wouldn't we want it to be the cleanest, simplest English or language, whatever it is, possible? Of course. so I don't, I'm starting to already feel more and more comfortable with the chat GPT reality, because why not?
0: So so basically, what we've learned today is that Eric is officially part of Skynet. Oh yeah, no, I'm, oh, and we're yeah. all fucked. When it comes to
1: the AI conversation, I am pro AI. To be clear, I'm pro LLM. Okay, because AI, and we don't, we're not going to go too far down this road. AI is so it people are humanizing. They're 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 anthropomorphizing AI. Motherfuckers say it hallucinates. No, it's buggy and it gives you the wrong answer once. That's not a hallucination. You hallucinate. Stop. It's like people turning their dogs into people. It's ridiculous. It's just, or into a movie. Like my life's a movie. Look, we're all about to join this great dystopian cyber. No, you're not. It's an LLM. It has. It's buggy. What it actually does is what you and I discussed. Now helps us work better, quicker, faster. Just like technology. Technology generally does.
0: So. I think I think you're going to have an AI episode in the future very soon because uh, this is going to be an area where Eric and I are going to probably.
1: Uh, oh yeah, I don't, let, let's we're gonna we're gonna way. butt
0: some heads on this one. I think this is a whole episode coming up. I think we've got to we've got to knock that because you know we don't want to just always be jovial and pleasant with you. We want to we want to tear each other down, destroy one another, and then come right, back the next week and just be fine. <laughs> um, but I am I am excited right now to unveil what is going to be a new mini segment on this podcast. And Eric hasn't seen the graphic yet. So I hope Eric enjoys it as I throw it up. Here we go. And it's, it's something that we're calling cancel corner. (laughs) This is, this is going to be a segment at the beginning of every episode where we talk about who is being canceled on the left and who is being canceled on the right and why. And, I'm very proud of that graphic that I threw together in about three seconds. Okay. Um, let's start out with our friends on the right, who are, and this takes actually a lot of brain power to actually make this make sense because if you remember, s- several times over the last decade or so, the left has been boycotting Chick fil A. They have boycotted them because, you know, they are a conservative uh, company because they're uh, the the founder of that company has donated money to anti LGBTQ plus causes. Has he also said anti-gay shit, too? Oh, yes. He is very much a a, 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 a evangelical Christian, like exactly the way you think would one would be. Right. And so after the last blow up with Chick-fil-A. They decided to hire a DEI person, you know, for diversity, equity and inclusion. Uh, And they hired someone who had actually worked for the company for 16 years, has only worked in this position for the last three years. And how this all started is because some asshat right winger who I I know of his name, but don't know him particularly well. His name is um, uh, Manorino, Joey Manorino. Okay, I never heard went online and basically was asking people why they weren't boycotting Chick-fil-A because of its DEI efforts. And now you've got all these right wingers and all these MAGA Republicans and all of these, you know, just asshats going and now boycotting Chick-fil-A because they are trying to do better with diversity and inclusion. Got it. So so it's like and let's be clear, they are a conservative company. Right. The only reason they even did these DEI efforts is probably for the optics. So it looks like they're actually, that's my guess. They may they it may m- not be in bad faith and if if it's not, I apologize, but it seems like it was a direct response to the uh reaction they were getting to the left from the left. And now you know, and I'm hardly, you know, we certainly don't need to spend the whole episode, you know, defending Chick-fil-A. Um and I I've, I've been very clear since the any of this began a decade or so ago, which is like, you know, every, I could probably pick up any item off my desk. I could put, pick up, and you're going to be like, why do you have these weird items just laying around your desk? I could pick up my degree uh, uh, underarm, what do you even call it? <laughs> Deodorant. Deodorant. I could, I could pick yeah. that. You can tell I never never use it. I could pick up <laughs> that. I could pick up my Android. I can pick up this mug and wonder where it was. Like, there's no product here that probably doesn't have some disturbing opinions. Sure, right. like everyone right. has them. And, Absolutely. And so, I, am I going to stop enjoying a Chick Fil A sandwich because they happen to give? No, I'm no, sorry. I, I, I had no, a lot of a
1: lot of friends were like, any self-respecting gay person that eats Chick Fil A, I'm like, well. Well,
0: I'm a self-respecting gay person, I know. and I am a gay person who champions queer rights and who. But you know what? I, I'm not going to give up my Chick Fil A. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know that that does. A. I don't think it does any good whatsoever. It's just virtue signaling. It makes people right. feel better about. Oh well, I gave up Chick Fil A, so that means that I care about the cause. Like, no, how about you spend eighty hours a week, like I do, actually working towards? Queer rights and right. queer equity. Right, and th- right. Why don't you do that work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah. you exactly. don't tell me that I don't get a say in the matter because I eat a chicken, a, a fucking chicken sandwich once a month.
1: Yeah, it's it's been a What it is is it's what it is is that people want to be able to take power external to the existing power structures within society as it stands. So financially, that's always been a, you know boycotting. This isn't new to boycott, right? No, not but. Enough it's absolutely been more weaponized because of social media and because of the immediacy of news and all of that, it really has become a tool. And in some cases, like in Harvey Weinstein's case, getting canceled was appropriate and he's absolutely. now been criminally charged and, and, and convicted and is a person that deserved that. <laughs> there are other people like what was the, the, the what was the comedian and sorry, what was his name? Oh, Where, Azeem, sorry. Yeah. yeah and, a, a chick had a bad date with them. he yeah. looked awkward
0: and he went through a cancel structure i'm like yeah. what the fuck he's is going on he's still recovering right? from right? that like what's going recovering. on no there's like, I, an idea now like the, the idea of canceling it started out with i it started out with i think altruistic motivations right you mean recently al- recently altruistic yeah, right? yeah 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 in terms of like you know i'm thinking of like uh, you know, the Me Too movement, we're trying to hold these people of power accountable. But of course, very quickly, it devolved into, well, if this, if we don't agree with this person 100%, let's cancel them.
1: Right, right. or us or, like, or cancel it, or if it was, them. Or if in the case of Me Too, right, there were a lot of people at the edges. I mean, even, even the stuff going on with Marilyn Manson. And honestly, when I heard the Marilyn Manson stuff, I was like, that guy's in trouble. <laughs> that guy's going down because he is crazy. I and I mean that as an opinion, right? Yeah. I, I enjoy I enjoyed his music uh you know as I was younger. I enjoy it sometimes now. But I felt awkward even listening to his stuff when what was first asserted about him came out. And guess what? It's all falling apart. Yeah. It's completely falling apart. And you gotta be like, hold on. And then when you find out that like it was engineered in the case of, and by the way, I'm I'm talking out of hand here. I could be slightly wrong with what I'm about to say. Please let me know. Um, But that it was an ex-girlfriend and her now girlfriend that had engineered so many of the charges against him. And so what it was is something that was a legitimate tool that was used against Weinstein as an example. And there were others where it was legitimate stuff that went on at Activision is immediately like, wow, man, just like crazy stuff that went on. And then, a guy who by all accounts should be – you were you were like, oh, yeah, of course, Marilyn Manson. Nope. There's nothing. And so I kind of – I just think it was a way for people to take power that got out of hand.
0: It just got well, out yeah. of hand. No, it absolutely did. And, and you know, and look, all, we, we talk about virtue signaling a lot, but you got all these like transparent motherfuckers too out there like, you know what? I'm never gonna listen to a Marilyn Manson song and I'm never gonna support him. Then they throw up the then they throw up their Michael Jackson's greatest hits like the shit <laughs> don't sting. And it's like, at least be consistent in your outrage. Right. I'll be clear, I'm not gonna stop listening to Marilyn Manson, Michael Jackson, or anybody. But like be consistent at least in your fucking outrage. Don't right, just right, jump right. like I because nothing's worse than a hypocrite. And and at least be consistent. Um yeah, like you know, and I haven't dove enough into the. I did read about you know how much it had fallen apart because I had the same reaction as you. And I'm someone who d- I do consider myself a fan of his music. Right. Um, I, and I followed it was like, yeah, I was like you. I'm like, oh, this motherfucker's done. He's right. gone. He's he's right. over with. But right. now you read more and more, and it's like you know, maybe not. Like we, we have to, we have to accept if we if we can accept that le- we live in a world where there is a power where there is a distorted power balance and where people in power can take advantage of people who are not in power. We also have to live in a world where people who are not in power might go out of their way to take down someone who is in power. For whatever right. fucking reason. Right, right, right. Both of yeah. those worlds have to exist at the same time and we have to pay enough attention to both of those worlds. Like we have to treat if someone comes forward and saying that they're the victim of abuse, we have to treat that seriously. We sure. need to investigate that. Right. But at the moment that we realize it's bullshit, we need to do a far better job of being like, Oh, by the way, that was bullshit.
1: Yeah, but the problem is is that and this this goes to actually several things we're talking about today. I think part of the problem is is that because of the polarization that again, comes with social media comes with the current news cycle and how it works. People don't want to hear about stuff when it doesn't meet their current political or social standing. Like there are still people claiming that what's going on with, what's going on with, uh, you know, with, with Marilyn Manson, that he actually is still guilty. And you're like, no, like there's no guilt. And it, and it's slowly falling apart. Maybe some of these other things will stick. It doesn't look like it's going to. And why is it now that we're going to go ahead and continue to try to cancel him because it now doesn't fit your tribal feelings about it, right? Your issue. And you see it with so much else where, you know, it's just, I think it's, Part of the polarization, part of the tribalism that doesn't allow people to clear up the mess that they may have started or created around someone's canceling when they turn out to be wrong. They're like, well, it was still right, right? It's not even, you know what I mean? It's not even about facts anymore, it's just about what side you're on.
0: Yeah, people are not willing to admit when they've when they've fucked up and when they've made a, a – when when a wrong accusation has been made. And yes, I understand. And I use – I say this a lot, innocent to prove it guilty, and I always get, well, that's not actually in the Constitution. Like, no shit. I'm aware that those words are <laughs> not in the Constitution. But if you read the Fifth and Sixth Amendment, that's pretty much what they're fucking saying, asshole. Right,
1: right. Um, and be, yeah, and beyond like, that, come like, on. we all see it as an ideal – like to make up that not everybody has innocent until proven guilty in their mind as an ideal, right? Like it's the free speech thing. Well, I'm not saying government should stop speech. I'm just saying that we should use, no, you're still trying to suppress speech. Stop. Stop yeah. with the qualification, right? And look, well, it's not in the Constitution.
0: Yeah. So fucking what? And, and look, I'll be consistent on it too. I've said, I've even said on this podcast before, you know, in talking with Donald Trump, like, you know, they tried to get him before, they tried to impeach him. He didn't get convicted, he's not been convicted of anything. He is right. innocent until he is proven guilty, whether you like him or not. And, like, I'll I'll fight for his right to be innocent and to be proven guilty just like I will anybody else's.
1: Right. Like, the because- reality – The reality is impeachment is a political process anyways. He still wouldn't be legally – sorry, go ahead. No,
0: no. So that's where – so we kind of talked about where the right is on the canceling side. And this is actually going to get us back into what Eric thought was just going to be a lighthearted one-episode discussion at the last episode, which is who the left are trying to cancel right now. And let's be fair. They've been trying to cancel him for a while now. This isn't a new thing. But as we get closer and closer to the release of The Flash – yeah, we're seeing more and more people come out like, "Oh, I'm not even going to watch the movie. I'm not going to go see this movie. I'm not going to go give money that could conceivably go into Ezra Miller's pocket."
1: I didn't and, know that he was trying to be canceled. How is he trying to be canceled right oh, now? You, it's okay.
0: just it's just a lot of like uh, film bloggers and film journalists really? and like people going on Twitter mainly. So it's like when I say there's a concerted effort, it's a concerted effort in the extent that like you know a bunch of uh, a bunch of like hyper woke leftist Twitter film fans are going at them. But um, but I read, I, I was reading someone that I follow on Twitter earlier today and they were, and this is someone who I follow regularly and who's, whose work I respect. And I read them and they were like, and they were generally like, well, I've just come to the conclusion that I, I get to not stress out now because there's no reason for me to go see this movie. There's no reason for me to support him and, and give them, or excuse me, them and give them money or blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, y- they're right. Like there's no, impetus on them to necessarily do that, but I guess my question would be like you're, you're, you're standing ground I've said this in the last, you're standing your ground on this one person who, who may or may not have done this thing, they haven't been convicted of, 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 of a lot, so it's like we're still in that innocent until proven guilty camp, and right. so like, so you're going to hammer down on this and just disregard the hundreds if not thousands of other people who also put their time and talent and energy into this film? So you're going to you're going to slight them because of this one person? How is that fair? Right. It's not, not fair. Sure. It's not fair.
1: No, it's not fair. And what's funny is, is he's getting the full support of you know the director producer was it the yeah. the, the, the Oh yeah, yeah. They, they've, they've come supporting them. Yeah. them. Yeah, saying he's going to do the sequel if there is one. All of that. So I mean. And you know, what, to be fair, I I, I honestly probably wasn't going to watch The Flash just because I'm a Marvel guy, right? Not that I, yeah, <laughs> right. But you know, I, I don't think that I actually care that Ezra Miller's getting a job, and maybe that will help keep him centered. Maybe being in the public eye will give him some space. You you actually did uh, pull me to your side on the Ezra Miller discussion yeah. before. I, I still find his countenance and how he expresses himself them, th- themselves oh, it's annoying i keep burning his his pronouns We're coming out as uh, uh, turfs today bill uh, but i mean i just it's it, it's 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 i, I don't i don't want to see them lose everything i don't need that they're, yeah. they're a douchebag. Fine. There's lots of douchebags in reality, and not all of them deserve.
0: But but uh, we also don't shit. know if he if they are just a generic douchebag or if they are a douchebag based on. I still don't. You know what, honestly,
1: factors. I still don't think they're a criminal douchebag in, yeah. in in their case, in, in, in the case of Ezra Miller. I just think they're a general douchebag. I, I I've heard all the stories about the kidnapping. Meanwhile, that person, the, the the person that he that he supposedly kidnapped has not come out in support of their parents' accusations. So no. that's the most serious thing. Sure, there was other stuff that went on, but that was adjudicated, yeah. right? Uh they got arrested, they've gone through court, they've had it I so yeah, I don't know. I, I so I didn't realize though that it was ramping up once again for them. In their mess, in their life. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I, I, th- I, I think they're going to get past it because I, is like I said, I don't see this isn't like we're comparing apples and oranges by comparing what's going on with Chick fil A versus Ezra Miller. They're not even close on the same scale. Right. And the right's also feeling pretty emboldened right now because they got Bud Light to change course, they got Target to change course, so they're feeling emboldened at this point of like, oh, we can just keep going after these companies but, that we but, don't but, agree with. But, but let me—I I don't know about the Target mess. But honestly, on the Bud Light mess, Bud
1: Light has classically been a brand that targets a certain segment of the population. Was yeah. this really Bud Light trying to? Because I saw that they, you know, they had the interview with that, um, with the person that was the brand manager, I believe that yeah. that's what her name that that's who she was. Can't remember her name. Where she basically was talking about how this was a brand in decline and this was an attempt at rebranding. I don't know if that's correct or true, but. Aren't, isn't it like, it almost seems like, so it almost seems like trolling to me, right? Like, here, let's go into this brand, which we know is a conservative brand. And we know that conservatives are generally resistant or antithetical to transgendered rights. We know that. But here, let me just slap that on there and see the explosion. What, What, in your mind, what the fuck were they doing bringing Dylan... You know Dylan into that mess because well, really in the end, the transgendered individual who they brought into that mess,
0: they got most of the hate. Well, because I, I well I think there's a misconception there though. I think there is the misconception that like these types of alcohol brands are inherently conservative because right. because they're not. Um, that you don't, might think be, Bud,
1: you don't think Bud Light is? I mean, Bud Light's no, taking no a I, shit sales wise, oh, oh, aren't
0: they? they? Oh, absolutely, they are. But I don't think that they are. Like, it's my experience that most alcohol companies are are not conservative at all. And I oh, mean and, and
1: that, that inside the companies, they're inclusive. Oh, absolutely, because okay, you
0: it. look at look at all look at any alcohol brand, and then just type in that brand and Pride in Google, and most alcohol brands celebrate Pride. Most alcohol brands promote to the LGBTQ plus community because we are, as a whole, we drink a lot and sometimes to our detriment. And there is actually a massive debate. (laughs) No, there's actually a massive debate going on in the queer community right now about whether or not the queer community needs to sever ties with alcohol companies because it is actually causing the community harm. But then again, we get into the place of like choosing like a lifestyle for someone else, which I am not in agreement with. But, and so I, I I got literally, I'll just use as a quick example. I had, so as folks know, I run a pretty massive, very progressive queer film organization here in Seattle. I say massive, it's two people on the staff. We're not massive right now, but but we do do a lot of, we do a lot, we, we do a lot of work. And I had someone who had previously volunteered and worked with us before who were not coming back to work for us. And they cited their reason as, Um, they didn't think that we were taking a a good enough look internally uh, as to why we're still using alcohol sponsors, that we should not be using alcohol sponsors because of the harm they've done to the community. And I didn't respond to them, but my thought was, so you want us to take three different companies that give us large amounts of money every year Right. To sponsor us, to help with queer causes, to help with our with what we're doing, but we should stop taking their money and cut ties with them, because one out of every ten queer people that drinks their product might get addicted to it.
1: Wait, right, so you think? So you think that alcoholism sits at below ten percent in the queer community, or is it higher?
0: I, I don't know. I'm literally we just talking know, right? out of my ass right. with that. I, I don't just know wondering. the exact numbers. No, but I'm like, we should abandon. But it's like we should abandon. We should abandon that because of – like, no. Like, no. Like, we're adult human beings. We can choose for ourselves what we want to do if we want to drink, if we don't want to drink. Like, I don't need to be everybody's, like, overlord telling them we're not even going to give you this option.
1: Right. Well, you know what it is. That's the new Puritan. It's the new Puritanism. That's the the thing that's so weird for me is when I started my life, the Puritans were religious primarily, right? Yeah. Like, that was – that was who you saw. Sure, there was a. Ironically, now I, I kind of look up to some of them. But the, you, you had the religious Puritans. You sort of had that white Anglo-Saxon Protestant stoic guy that I actually kind of looked up to, and, yeah. and, and, and in fact, maybe and try to emulate now. But that Puritanism is now it, it's now spread to to both sides. Yeah. And it's in the extreme on both sides, and so the person that asked you, is this is a person that's an extreme leftist.
0: Like, yes, I mean, is they're, this, they're yeah. very, very far left. See,
1: what, I don't know yeah. what's what is going on with Puritanism. I mean, yeah. I, here's the truth: I, I, I have had a a, a, a splotchy career with drugs in the past, right? Yeah. And I've never been a big drinker, and in fact, I haven't drank now for almost. Four years, I I think I've, made, I've taken a sip, but I don't like the feeling of day after alcohol, so I don't do it anymore. And, yeah. and the thing that's crazy is that works for me. I'm certainly not giving a shit what anybody else yeah. is doing over here. Like, who cares? But man, there are a lot of people that are like, "Well, there's there's damage being done to this community by X." Well, hold on, right? I mean, what do you what do you, like? And just like you said, are we now? Is every community now going to come up with a set of behavioral, uh, you, know, di- you, know, cir- you know, a set of behavioral, uh, like list of shit that you should do? Here's the behaviors you should engage in. Yeah. No, man. The trick is: Are you showing up? Are you providing value? Are you providing joy? Well, rock on, man. Are you getting drunk every night? Fine, if that works for you. I know that that doesn't work for people in the long term. But yeah. how many people do I know now that get that that get drunk or high or something every day, there's quite a few. And guess what?
0: So what? Well, yeah. And look, and we're going to have a conversation later with Dr. Hager Hager about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And so like, and how does that play in? Well, in those situations, you're not just, you're not just drinking for you, right? You're drinking for you and some, and another entity, another creature. And so like, and so, that's different, right? As well, long yeah, but, as what you're doing is not putting someone else in danger, right? do whatever you want to do.
1: Right. But even that, if you think about it, I'm going to make it even weirder, but here we go. Even that, look, no judgment. But if you drink too much when you're pregnant, your kid's going to be broken. That's it. Like as a reality, You right, t- let's take the moral judgment completely yeah. out of it. Even then most parents would be like oh shit i don't want to do that i don't want to yeah. damage my child so i won't do that pro- that that thing i won't i won't take that action Yes. Yeah. but the, the puritanism i see it it pretends to talk about effects yeah. but what it's really doing is governing behavior absolutely. controlling behavior it's really to me another authoritarian
0: expression and it's very odd to me honestly no i i absolutely agree look we're in agreement how shocking um shit so you know, moving on from Cancel Corner, um, I think that was a very productive first, uh, installment of Cancel Corner. And just right. for folks who didn't get a chance to see it, there it is. Look at those, <laughs> look at those, look at those canceled faces. Um, so a lot's gone on in the past week and, um. And we've intentionally actually changed the way that we record so we're actually a little right. more a little more prescient in what we're talking about. I realized that there was about a, a week long lag in the topics well, We were we were, talking we were
1: about. always a week behind. Yeah, and and I, was, and it was, I like, was actually gonna talk to you about it and then you just fixed it I'm like okay. Yeah, because I was great on minds one, think a lot. Li- because okay. on
0: one hand, it's great to be able to be a week ahead of recording, but on the other hand, you lose out on the relevance of what you're talking about. Right. So so a lot's been happening lately. Um you know, the, I'll, I'll start with this because I just read today, uh, I, for folks out there who watch Meet the Press, uh, Chuck Todd is leaving Meet the Press uh, after um, quite a quite a while now that he's been hosting that show. Um, and I'm seeing all these people celebrate it. My, my response to it is good fucking riddance. Why do you not um, like
1: Chuck Todd? I, I knew that I, – I wasn't – I see what's funny is I didn't know if you were – what of the Chuck Todd haters.
0: Say, oh, I'm a Chuck Todd hater. And I'll say this. And so Why? much of the reason that I'm a Chuck Todd hater probably has very little to do with Chuck Todd, even though I don't think he's a particularly insightful interviewer. I don't think that he's good about asking the really tough questions. But the big reason is he's not Tim Russert. <laughs> like I think Tim Russert was the best to ever do it. I think since he passed away, we have been right. missing that level of like journalistic integrity. And, um, I just don't know. David Gregory didn't do it for me, uh, and Chuck Todd didn't do it for me, and now yeah. and now we're moving on. It's a uh, Kristen Welker is taking over. I'll be interested to see how that goes. But if she's not prepared to like go deeper than Chuck Todd, it's going to be the same old shit. Well, Chuck Todd
1: always came off to me as like uh, dispassionate, and I know that that's weird as a person that you know I I, I want. People doing the news and doing those types of programs to to not let their passion overwhelm them. But I I often felt like I, I didn't feel like he was being authentic about how he really felt. I, yeah. I know that sounds weird, but and maybe that's not true. But I just never got it from him. I always like I could never
0: watch that program
1: honestly, not with
0: him doing it. No, I, I couldn't either. And I used to watch it every week when when Russert hosted, and, right. and I even and I even watched it some into the David Gregory. Sort of period. But um, no, I just I'm like, you know, Chuck Todd, probably a brilliant guy, probably a super nice guy. But I don't think Meet the Press is was the right fit for him. And so I'm interested to see it hopefully go in a different direction because I I just I go on these benders. Usually I'm very stoned when I go on them. Um, But I go on these benders where I'll just watch like old political interviews from the 60s and 70s. And it's just shocking the level of intelligence that used to go into any political discussion. I'm talking about whether it's Firing Line or Dick Cavett or anything like that. You hear yeah. these people having these very intellectual conversations that are also, they make sense. Like any regular person listening can understand what they're talking about. Right, and right. like we've lost that. Like now people are just playing to the lowest common denominator, they're dumbing everything down. Like we go from someone like, I've said it before on Twitter. We go from someone like William Buckley to someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene. And right. it seems like – I don't I don't know. It's like going – it's just ridiculous. And, and Chuck Todd kind of has fallen into that for me where it was like, can't you do better than this? You've got one of the best platforms in politics. Can't you do better than this?
1: Yeah, but the problem is even – look, here's what's interesting. Like a guy like Buckley would get on there and actually – be accountable for what he was saying. Yes, right? he was willing to back up what he was saying right there. Yeah. Um, even you know what's funny is I, I kind of felt like, and I'm wrong. I'm going to tell you I'm wrong, but I thought Mehdi Hassan. I thought he was going to be like a William Buckley type, but from the left. But honestly, in the end, he's punked out on stuff that he's claimed, and he stretched it right. Like the, yeah. Like there was there's there something that had to do with crime rates between whites and blacks, which I think is an odious discussion anyways. But he he completely lied about the... like measure. So, for instance, in this case, when measuring something like that, you would measure per capita. That way, you can account for the difference in population. But instead, he touted a rate of violence from whites that he then said was greater than the violence from blacks, but not on a per capita basis. That whole argument we're not going to get into here, because I'm just not doing that right now, but he basically bullshitted, and it's sad yeah. because I'm like Buckley wouldn't have done that. Buckley would it Buckley would have uh, would have bucked up, no pun intended there, and, and 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 dealt with it and had the conversation about it. We, in fact, you only saw Buckley fall apart once in that conversation with uh, what was his name, the writer. Oh, Gore Vidal? The Gore Vidal conversation yeah. where he th- said he would knock him out. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll, well, I'll well, shock you thing. and you'll stay plastered. That was the only time you saw him act crazy, and even then, it still looked like polite crazy.
0: Well, I also I, for a while there, I was like, maybe Eric and I should do a new series where each week we watch a William F. Buckley interview and then just comment on it. Because uh, no, I'll be honest, I'm am, I, I am like obviously I am fascinated by William Bu- William F. Buckley because I mean I, I disagree with so much of what he disagrees with on a political spectrum, right? But I have so <laughs> much respect for someone who can go into a conversation with such confidence and they have that confidence because, they're very well educated on the topics. They, they're right. w- educated enough where they can riff and they can improv and they can go down all of these tangential alleyways and still have that confidence because they've done their homework. Yeah, And yeah. they're not intimidated by whoever is across the, the sea from them. They're not. And I look at the, what I consider to be the great debaters like William F. Buckley and Gore Vidal throw someone in that I also admire like Christopher Hitchens. Right. Like they had that ability to just eviscerate you no matter where you went. Right, right. And, like they, they, and they, if, they, if
1: they had any kind of basis, they had you. If if you were saying something that that they could pick apart, you were going to get picked apart. And I do. I miss it as well. Um, there are people out there. They're just not people that are. Um, they're not at the top. They're not at the pinnacle now. But there are absolutely people out there who can debate like that. It's funny. There's a, a he's a streamer, Steve Bunnell, Destiny. He's a, like he started playing video games. Like he was – this was a StarCraft guy. And yeah. he's developed into a debater. I've watched him shut down people, fairly big names. They won't even talk to him anymore, yeah. right? And that's the kind of – that's and actually I, I enjoy seeing that. I enjoy seeing the new media coming up around that because that that's what you want. You want people to bring facts. To discuss facts. Yeah. And what, what ends up happening now is you have people coming in talking about their feelings, yes. their truth, right? Yes. Their truth. Get out of here. I'm not saying that people don't deserve to have their truth and their story.
2: But Absolutely
1: a story is do. not a story is not a fact, no. necessarily. It's and a your story, story you know. is
0: not anybody else's story. Right. And so like it's <clears> it's <throat> people pretending like their story speaks for like the masses. And it's like everybody's story is unique. It's like a fingerprint. Nobody's right. story is going to be right. the same as someone else's. So right. anybody who's trying to do that is starting from a very disingenuous place, I think. And um, yeah, I just, I miss, I miss the time of discourse. And like, and, because, and, you know, people are like, yeah, but like, they but people back then could go out and have a drink together. Do you think Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley went out for drinks regularly? <laughs> they did not. Nope. They vehemently, could not stand one another, nope. but they still had enough respect for one another to be able to get into a forum where they could debate issues and go at each other. And um, yeah, I just, I don't see that anymore. Like I, I just don't see it. And, and unfortunately, like most of what I consider to be like the very eloquent speakers right now are on the right. And, yeah. and they're not people I agree with at all. Like I don't agree with Jordan Peterson. I think he's kind of a schmuck. But you know what? He's really good in debates. He's a really good person. He's he's an intelligent person, whether you agree with right. him or not. And, and same people, with someone and a like
1: of, a lot of people attack him as if he's being unintelligible, or you'll see people attack him for no. crying, stuff like that. And you're like, yo, man,
0: what about dealing with the substance of what he's saying? Yeah, because you don't have at, to agree with him. I don't. Yeah, but I right. can still at least appreciate how he's able to make a case and how he is able to formulate his ideas. Right. And. And that's what I miss is people who actually put more because you know most people who show who pop up on one of these quote unquote talk shows they'll show up and probably have been debriefed by their people. They've probably gotten the questions in advance. they know exactly right. what they're going to say. Like I miss like the Buckley firing line stuff where you realize when you're in there these guests have no idea what they're going to be talking about. There's a really great episode with William F. Buckley and Muhammad Ali. That comes across it's it's right after Muhammad Ali has gone through all the legal stuff and right. has been banned from boxing. And it's a really amazing back and forth where you can tell Muhammad Ali has no clue what they're gonna be talking about, but he's able to like carry that conversation like it's nothing. Like he can go down all these alleyways. And he did. And he did and, he, and, and way, he does very, it really,
1: very effectively made his point to someone. I think he made that in the conversation of I believe the same conversation. Uh, that you're thinking of, he effectively made his point to Buckley, right? Absolutely. Buckley didn't exactly Buckley didn't dispute what he said. No. In fact, that no. he may have opened Buckley's eyes.
0: Yeah, and so I. So, long moral of the story, I missed that. Um, <laughs> that's the moral <laughs> of the story. But I do want to touch on a couple of other things uh, because something that did just happen recently was the anti drag ban that was passed in Tennessee has been ruled unconstitutional, right. um, which. We knew was going to happen, uh, U.S. District Judge Thomas Parker, who, let's be clear, was appointed by Donald Trump, yeah, Trump to the bench. Right. Um, and this is what he said. There is no question that obscenity is not protected by the First Amendment. But there is a difference between material that is obscene in the vernacular and material that is obscene under the law. Simply put, no majority of the Supreme Court has held that sexually explicit but not obscene speech receives less protection than political, artistic, or scientific speech.
1: Right.
0: right. And my response to that
1: is... Duh. Right. 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 But I, but I mean, I, and but the, there, there's mess in there. But the one thing I will say is just like this, all of the other stupid laws that are coming up, whether they be laws championed by the right or laws yep. championed by the left, they're all going to fall. Yep. Every last one. Yep. You know, I, it, what's crazy is. The, the unfortunate reality about the American system is it's going to take time for all of these lawsuits to work their way through. But yeah. when, they're said, when all is said and done, I, I, I feel pretty confident now that you're going to see free speech win. You're going to see yeah. people – look, again, when it comes to a drag queen reading a book to a child in the way that it was actually meant – Nobody's going to care about that except for some parents. No. And those parents, by the way, should be allowed to, to opt their children out of that conversation. Absolutely. But what you actually saw, some of the conver- – like people were like hosting that one – because there are people that went, off the, that went off the reservation with that, where there were people doing essentially stripper performances in front of children. Those might be obscene. But you don't have to change the law for that. The law already exists for that. It's obscenity laws. They already exist. Yeah. Go apply those. But instead, we're gonna make it into a broader societal, you know, like you know, societal attack yeah. on the left, on, on on an expression of the LGBTQ community, right? No, I don't think you or anybody else I know is saying that people should be doing strip club antics in front of children. Not at That's all. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. The fact yes. that it's happened Nobody is. No the one fact is. That, but yeah, but the fact that it's happened is of course true. And and people can go after that with obscenity laws. The way that books have been banned, whether it be on, whether it be books that the left would normally want to see banned or books that the right would normally want to see banned, right? That's all going to go away. Oh, yeah. It's ridiculous. You know, again, I the idea that that the idea that any of it, like like Toni Morrison's Beloved, yeah. In the end, the argument against it was that it was pseudo incest because Beloved sleep. Like, get the hell! What did you really? Are you you realize you're talking about a ghost in the book, right? We're talking about it's just like it's it the, the shoehorning of this yeah. into it has been it's terrible. So just to so I'll I'll I'm I'm I I ranted a bit. No, this rant away. Is, this is the expected end for all of this bullshit whether it be on the left or the right is free speech will prevail and you guys can fuck yourselves with every all the other shit it's just ridiculous okay you huck finn will be back in school and it should be in school right i get it there's a guy in the book named n-word jim okay i get it so what you need to understand the context of that book and to teach it to kids nowadays i don't care that some how about this If a child says something racist after reading Huckleberry Finn, that's something you should deal with the child about, their parents, what's going on in the school for that to happen. I know that when I read that book, I didn't go out to like the first black kid and call him N-word Jim. Are you kidding me? I I felt bad after reading that. I was like, damn, it sucked then. You know what I mean? I, yeah. So yeah. what you're going to see just similar to this is these laws will be struck down because they're unconstitutional well, at the court. Period. Y- exactly.
0: And I keep hearing from some folks and I get it. I get the concern, but it's like, well, what if it advances all the way to the Supreme Court? Well, my, my response to that would be, I mean, it just got thrown out by a conservative judge appointed by Donald Trump. Yeah. Yeah. There's no reason to right. think that the conservative justice is appointed by Donald Trump who were actually at the highest office of the land are going to. Right. Or, yeah. They're going like to so, do their jobs.
1: So you see a lot of people on the left, they're like, just wait for it to get to the Supreme Court. Exactly. They're just gonna, like, I'm like, come on, how do you, I'm like, that's not, I'm like, you don't have any evidence that that's true.
0: No, and and you people, can, look, you can disagree with Brett Kavanaugh and all of these new conservative justices. You can disagree with them all you want, but at the end of the day, they do have a job to do. And I, I may be in the, the minority here, but I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Yes. That they are going to vote the way that they are being compelled to vote based on the Constitution. That's not always going to work out the way we want it to work out.
1: Right, right. And everybody wants to point to the abortion decision, but even Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that it was bad law. And she warned that people, meaning in this case Democrats, needed to put legislation in place so that Roe wasn't the deciding, because she knew and she was right. And by the way, not only was she right, but we should have expected this. Yeah. That if somehow that there was a statistical reality in this case it was a little push, of course, by 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 certain you know people uh, like Mitch McConnell, for instance, that helped get it done. But the second it was a conservative court, Roe was the first thing to go. Oh yeah, everybody okay. knew it, and sure yeah. enough, it happened. That doesn't mean that they're gonna that they're gonna make the abortion drug illegal. Because yeah. if they were to do so, that would make a lot of other drugs illegal. So yeah. I don't think that they're going to do that. Every single far left or, or or more aggressive leftist that I know swears to me that the abortion drug is going to be made illegal. That that in this case, uh, you know, when it gets to the Supreme Court, uh, you know, being gay and expressions of being gay are once again going to be illegal. Yeah. That they're going yeah. back to the old days. I don't see that. I don't either.
0: I, don't. I I don't see that either. I've I've been given nothing to show me that that's going to happen. Right. And yeah. and also, look, let's be clear. You, the abortion, because here is, I don't think we're going to be. I don't think we're living in a time right now where we're going to see another abortion. You know, we're going to see another Roe v. Wade type abortion. Like we're not going to see that anymore. No. Like it's on. It's going to be for the foreseeable future on the state level. State by state, and, right. Yeah, and we're going to have to wrap our minds around that as much as that's going to suck for a lot of people, and it will. And I'm not su- and I'm not suggesting that people who are fighting against it shouldn't keep fighting and protesting. Like, you do whatever you feel compelled to do. But we do need to start wrapping our minds around the fact that this is going to be on a state by state basis yeah. for the foreseeable future until right. we can get enough of a majority in Congress to actually pass it into law. Right, by the way.
1: By the way, that's how it was designed, too. Don't look now. The, fe- <laughs> the federalist system was designed to run just like this, meaning each state would have the ability to create laws that governed how things went on in that state, with very few exceptions, right? Yeah. Like, look, I would support, personally, national abortion legislation. Yeah. The question, the thing that you got to ask yourself is if you support it on one side, it's supportable on the other side. So to be fair, maybe state by state works out in this single case. I don't know. We'll have to see. Yeah,
0: I think we're going to see. I think we're going to see how it evolves over the next few years. I know everybody's still just in an uproar and and scared because they don't know what's going to happen, and I understand that. I I totally get that. And I, you know, I'm fortunately in one of the most progressive states in the country, so I know it's not something that people in the state of Washington are going to have to worry about. Or or, or know, You're in California, exactly. But, you know, thinking about someone in Arkansas or someone in South Carolina or someone like, yeah, it could be really horrific for them. And I think Um, but I think, you know, again, though, we've got to start wrapping our minds around the reality of the situation. And the reality right now is it's going to be on a state by state basis. There are going to be a lot of people who suffer because of that. And if we want to put it into law, which is what we should be doing, uh, then we know what we need to do. We need to get people in office who are actually going to do that. Right. And, you know, and that's not going to happen in the next, in the immediate future. It's going to be years before that's able to happen. Um, and then sort of the last thing I wanted to touch on, I, you know, we, we last week, we talked a good while about the debt ceiling, about whether or not we were going to reach an agreement and all of the bullshit that surrounded it. Well, shocker. And I say shocker as someone who was actually concerned this time, I was right. like, if ever there was a time when we could default, it would be now. Of course, we came up with a last minute solution that now, you know, the writer saying they've scored this big victory, but you actually read and it's like, well, we... Well, wait, hold this
1: we, What's funny about this is this. Early on, I believe in the first episode, we had this conversation that I said my dream was a world in which we would come up with solutions that neither the left nor the right would be happy about, truly. Yep. But that would keep things going. This is exactly that. Exactly that. that fucking it's exactly thing. that. And what's crazy, man, I saw, and it's fucking stupid, I saw so many people on the left we just smug and snide. Yeah, it took more. It was more Democrats and Republicans that voted for that. Yo, isn't that what we've been... Cr- ever since the child molester, I mean, Dennis Hastert, the Dennis Haster rule, okay? The child molester rule, where we don't bring legislation to the floor unless a majority, right, of, of Republicans, unless the, unless they... Dude, I don't like... The Speaker of the House right now. I hate him. Sure. I'm not. I'm not a fan of that man. Kiss my ass. But he brought something to the floor to make something work. He made a deal. He kept his word. Like, what do you want? Both sides were unhappy with it. The extremes on both sides were extraordinarily unhappy with it. What else do you want? This is how it looks to live in a pluralistic society. Okay? No, no.
0: This is this is. This is mm-hmm. what this is what compromise tastes like, motherfuckers. Right. This, and right. and it doesn't always taste yeah. good. Right. Everybody leaves disappointed, and and you know what? It's okay for y'all to be disappointed as long as we are benefited by it. Right. Because that's your whole fucking job. Your job is to not to leave a meeting feeling like you won or that you conquered somebody or that you got what you wanted. Your object is to leave a meeting having done what's best for your fucking constituents. Right. And sometimes right. that doesn't taste good. Right,
1: but you know what this betrays? What this betrays is that both sides want to see pain yes, and discomfort visited on the other side. And what's interesting yes. about this is both sides have elements of win in the compromise and they're both trumpeting that and that's what you should do. Exactly. But I see an enormous amount of angst on both sides because they didn't visit enough pain on the other side. That's exactly what it is. How ridiculously tribal can you be? How ridiculously, honestly, I'm going to say it. Here we go. How ridiculously anti-American can you get than that? Get the fuck out of here with your shit. What we got is a system. You know, there's parts of it that I'm not into. I think that we should raise taxes on people who are making more money. I think we should, for instance, I think we should reverse the tax cuts from the Trump era. But there are people on the right that think that I'm an asshole and I'm trying to steal their money, right? And I get yeah. that. But guess what we got? We got something that keeps America going. Yeah. And we have to be on Team America. No,
0: I mean, I'm getting weird, but we do.
1: This yeah. is where we not, live. No, what, do we I, want to tear it down?
0: I don't want to tear it down. I think, th- I think what <clears> should become <throat> the discussion now is like the long-term efficacy of the debt ceiling and whether or not it's something we even need at at this time and place because what we see happen over and over again is that Republicans don't give a shit about the debt ceiling until a Democrat is in charge. Right. When their people are in charge, they don't care. It does not matter to them. Spend as much money as you want. The minute a Democrat is in office, oh no, this is is a moment of like national importance. We have to figure this out. So we have to find a way to keep from falling into that cycle over and over again. My suggestion, which is I know not An uncommon suggestion is we don't fucking need a debt ceiling. It's not something that we need to have. Right. Um, You know, so we can get out of this like back and forth over and over again and stop worrying about how it's going to affect who's in office. It won't affect anybody in office.
1: Yeah, but I think that there's another option too beyond that. And what's weird to me is that nobody talks about the option of reducing the debt. And here's why. Oh, sure. What I know and what I think anybody – knows that that's had to deal with large amounts of debt in their personal life. The more money you spend on existing debt is the less money you can spend on your cash flow for getting your life yeah. taken care of. And so the fact that we operate on such a large debt load means that that money that we could use for research, for homelessness, for education, anything gets sucked up into, you know, and, and you end up paying more now, for money you bought or that you borrowed in the past, I, I look. I'm an argument for a reduction. Um, I'm, I'm very libertarian on this, actually, which I didn't realize I was. I I don't even understand why we're having debt. Like, I get that it's something that you need to do, and I get that there's a process to it. But I think we're, I think our debt is too large, and. How to get any side of the aisle to deal with it for the reasons that you brought up, right? The Republicans like to increase the debt load when they're in charge so they can use it to beat up on the Democrats. The Democrats like to increase the debt load because they think that there are things that should be paid for. Right, yeah. that that costs money that might drive us into debt, and in fact, there are many on the hyper left that don't even believe debt exists as part of a corrupt system, the corrupt system of capitalism. That's not even real. Fuck off. Okay, how about, fine. How,
0: how about you? How about you tell the fine folks at American Express that debt isn't real, so I can stop paying my monthly credit card payment. Well, right. Why don't you explain to them that debt's not real, geniuses? <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, that's just. I I, I actually I think. This would lead into actually a future, a good future episode, not the debt conversation, because I was about to go down a tangent, but I don't want to because I think (laughs) it's going to be too long winded. I think I think one of the upcoming episodes will dive into uh, the U.S. and Ukraine. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that'll be a good first episode, but I think that's enough bloviating for this episode. Um, uh, Up next, I'm very excited. You're going to be listening to our conversation with Dr. Astrid Hager, who runs a violence intervention program in Los Angeles, where Eric. Currently serves as uh, IT Mac Daddy, and what I once (laughs) served as assistant IT Mac Daddy. Yep, yep. The old days, the, the good old days. The good old days, but a super amazing conversation. It's going to be the first in a series of conversations. We're going to start bringing Dr. Hager on monthly to talk about a wide range of issues that affect children. And basically, we're going to dive deep into why the U.S. doesn't give a fuck about kids anymore.
1: (laughs) No, I mean, it's good that we're getting her on. And it's good that we're giving her a space to talk. The the talk ended up being excellent. And she – look, she is a mover and a shaker in that space. Like seriously, man. Nobody – Nobody has done as much for as as she's done, even close. Like the amount of stuff that like that she's actually done, it could be articles. It it is, there are articles where it's just her listing off the things that got done. And I'm glad that we're giving her space to voice how she feels about it, what she's done, what she wants to do now, because man, she is such a value in that space. And it's something that nobody likes to talk about because it's not an easy space to get things done in. But to be clear, she's made a, like, uh, like you've like, well here later, she's made a big difference. And ultimately it helps all of us to clear up the mess that's in child, mental and, and physical health care, And to clear that mess up early because you either clear it up then or it shows up later in, yeah. greater, in larger prison populations, greater abuse and, and strife and just terribleness in society as a whole. So, yeah, it's. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad she's coming on monthly with us. It's going to be great.
0: Well, we hope you enjoy that interview. And then we'll be back afterwards for some closing thoughts. So stick around for some uh, ad spots from some of the podcasts and some of the products that we enjoy. And then we will be right
3: back. Streaming services got you down. Did they remove a TV series while you were in the middle of watching it? Did they delete a film that you previously paid for? Physical media is the answer to these problems, and The Disc Connected is your guide. Hi, I'm Ryan Verrill, creator of The Disc Connected, a podcast and YouTube channel dedicated to all things physical media, including 4K UHDs, Blu-rays, DVDs, and even VHS tapes. Each week, The Disc Connected releases an interview with an industry professional like director Sean Baker, and host a live show with a guest to highlight all of the boutique physical media releases that were announced in the seven days prior. Following these announcements, the guest and host also discuss a topic in film. Previous topics have ranged from favorite films directed by a specific director to impactful films that are directed by women. You can find The Disconnected on the podcast service of your choice or on YouTube. I hope to see you in the live chat.
1: All right, our guest today is a global authority on child abuse and forensic pediatrics. She established the Pioneering Violence Intervention Program, originally known as the Center for the Vulnerable Child in the 1980s. She's an innovator in women's health, founding one of Los Angeles' earliest women's violence clinics. Dr. Eger also helped create a leading program for studying and treating fecal alcohol spectrum disorder. As someone who works closely with her, I can vouch for her unyielding commitment to improving children's health and supporting families. Please welcome, Dr. Astrid hepenstahl Hager.
2: Welcome. <laughs> Good morning on this bright and uh, uh, overcast day in Los <laughs> Angeles. Right. Sunday. Yep. And and here it is an un, un,
0: unyieldingly sunny and beautiful day in Seattle. I would trade oh. in a heartbeat for just thirty minutes of rain.
2: Yeah. Well, there there you go. I I can understand that. I've been there for many months and we had a few more than 30 minutes of rain this last year. Um, that was uh, very nice of you, Eric. I appreciate the introduction. I, um, <clears throat> I certainly um, will tell you that any path that I walked in this, where I am now and what I want to advocate for and what I feel to be essential in protecting children started with my learning from my patients uh, and then from a system where you queried, uh, where are the gaps? Like, why are we not, why are we not protecting kids? Are they valuable enough that we should protect them? Um, and I think that, um, that's where I'd like to go today, maybe, and, and talk yeah. a little bit about why it's important and, and, uh, the, you know, pushing the hard button versus pushing the easy button. It's, it's, uh, it's always a hard button that ends up getting, uh, the results. Um, and, uh, Again, uh, those of us who are in the field of child protection cannot do this any longer by ourselves. We live in a bureaucracy where children are are um, are maybe a luxury, uh, maybe certainly not important enough to invest in. And then if we as a society don't uh, invest, uh, I shudder to think of how much further down uh, the slide a society can go. So... Um, I'm not sure exactly um, how how to start. I can talk a little bit about why I did what I did and um, well so- I mean yeah
1: th- that would help but the reality is even doing that opening there was there's so much <laughs> like I could have just read an article and um, I, I think I know that today we're going to focus on some of the stuff with DCFS and how, how that works but why don't you go ahead and start yeah with some a bit of a yeah. uh, introduction I for might- yourself and
0: I might have a broad question to sort of get us there Uh, that might be a good Mm -hmm. sort of starting point, which is uh, because I'm curious from your point of view, and this feeds right into what we're talking about today. In your mind, Mm -hmm. when was the turning point when the United States stopped investing in the future of our children?
2: Oh, that's very interesting. Um, I think that it's it's like a bell-shaped curve. You know, there was a time many, many decades ago where we didn't invest much at all. You know, we didn't have any laws protecting them. We had better laws protecting animals and kids. And then we had a surge of interest uh, in protecting kids that actually sort of just kind of went right behind what we were women's rights. And women begin to demand rights and right behind it came their childhoods because most of them had memories of childhood that were a little frightening. So they sort of brought the children into it and began to pay attention to that. Um, And I think we, I think as a society began to listen and women began to say, yes, uh, that was my experience. And then men came forward and said, yes, that was my experience and began to, to pay attention to that. I think that as we've gone into in the last I would say, in my career, looking at the last 15, 16 years, we've gone um, we've gone the other direction. We've gone into a world of that's too expensive. It takes too much time. It's too hard. Uh, they're minority. They're immigrants. Um, they're poor. And so those in power have not really wanting to invest. Uh, that's That's been my, my experience. It's like, Every speed bump, everything we did here was a speed bump, interestingly enough it's like you know when you when you are when you are living at home, there comes a time when you go out and say there's too many weeds in my yard they 're bothering me, and then yeah. you begin to pull them so now the kids that we ignored uh, fifteen began to ignore fifteen years ago are now at an age where they can cause havoc in our lives. So now we begin to see newspaper articles, certainly LA Times, we're gonna talk more about that in the weeks to come, but we're beginning to see people say, well, why didn't we do this? Or why didn't we do that? Or um, uh, words coming, like for in LA right now, we're gonna go broke because of lawsuits by kids that were mistreated in, the, so in, in both the juvenile justice and in the protection system. Uh, which might be a euphemism, um, in any event, I, I mean, I think they have to become a nuisance in order for us to, to, um, to pay attention, you know, to why we build jails, is we don't want criminals on the streets. So it's, it's an interesting thing right now. There's people looking at the weeds, but how much and how much energy are they willing to invest is the question that I think sits out there.
0: Well, and I feel like if history has shown us nothing else, we all have PhDs in hindsight. <laughs> it's easy for everybody to look back and be like, Oh, well, we should have done this, we should have done this. Like, where were you at the time with your listening ears actually listening to people tell you what you could do?
2: Right. No, I right. mean I think I think right now one of the I I'll tell you what. It's really an interesting and and it's it's a it, it it's it's gonna it's expensive and that we have to invest in it, but by investing in it at the very earliest stages of a kid's life, we're gonna save A lot of money down the road and a lot of heartache and a lot of of anything that is destructive in our society right now but let's just look at it from the standpoint of of the fact that we did pass laws that said children are going to be protected and we're going to protect them So we need to call in and report. You're a mandated reporter, you're a teacher, you're a crossing guard, you're a doctor, you're a nurse, you're whatever. Or even listening to neighbors that call in anonymously and say, so-and-so next door sounds to me like they're trying to kill their kids. All of those in my infancy uh, and career uh, in child abuse were things that we responded to. And we responded to them sometimes by just going in, when I started going in and taking kids away from their parents and putting them in foster care, and then we had to sort it out in the courts. When I started this program uh, in the in the 80s, it became so obvious to me that many of those children were being taken away by mistake. They were being detained because they were black or they were brown, or their parents didn't speak English, or they were poor, they were living in a garage, they didn't have a stroller, they didn't have water, and it dawned on me that really my job was to see to it that we were appropriately looking at these kids and taking the kids into foster care that needed to go into foster care. And ultimately, like what was that passage like and how did we support foster parents? And we'll get to that. But at that moment, it was somebody had to be available to see these kids at the moment. For example, I'm you know, I'm beginning this program at USC. And I um, I get a call from a judge's uh, from a, from a child from the from the children's court saying I have this kid here. It's been in foster care for eight months because she's eight years old. And um, on the way home, on the way to school, one morning, she uh, had blood in her underwear. And the, and they called in a report and said we need to make sure she wasn't raped at home. And um, they detained her. And they put her in foster care. Happened to be her birthday that day, which made it t- triply awful for her. Okay. But so they take her into foster care. And the judge, the kid says, nothing's happening to me. And she's, you know, seven, eight, eight years old. And so the judge calls me. I'm the only one doing these exams, right? And so they bring her in. And nobody had done an exam on her or really consider it or took a good history. And she was a kid that started her periods early in life at eight years of age. And she'd been in foster care for eight months. So I decided, you know, it was like, we're not going to do that anymore. So if you don't know what you're doing, please call me and I'll be there. Well, I was by myself. So it was like coming in at night or coming in on the weekend because I had three kids and I didn't want any child to be taken away from their parents by mistake so what i really learned and the bottom line is one that it, every child in which you suspect that they're at risk or being abused need an exam by somebody who's an expert and who goes in to see the child with the idea i'm going to make this normal if i can i want the kid to stay home so let's just leave it there so you have somebody with presenting complaints which is what doctors do all the time etc how about call from a neighbor or a call from a school teacher or somebody saying you know um you know john is johnny's coming to school every day in the same dirty clothes he's losing weight he's sitting in the back of the room he's not talking to anyone and and what do you do with that kid do you just say well tough you know, let him let him gut it through. How about if we use that as somebody putting their hand up saying, Whoa, look at me over here. I need help. Right. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? In other words, yeah. let's use that as a prevention key rather than saying, We don't want to hear about it at all.
1: Yeah, perhaps they don't need to be removed from their house they just need some service and help with getting clothing and a place to live right so, there's so, a, so that's the case so, management part of it and right.
2: as, as you know eric that's one of the things that we learned here that we learned that in dealing in the in, in high-risk kids or child abuse or sexual assault of children or whatever by asking the child and asking the family how can we help you we are able to use our resources and that's how we grew and that's what we do, our resources to help sustain the child and the family whenever possible. Right. So to me, the movement right now is towards maybe we don't want to see it again. This is this bell-shaped curve. We're, don't, we're not going to take reports from teachers. We're not going to take reports, anonymous reports. We're not going to take reports from neighbors. Basically, we're just not going to take reports. Uh, and so we're going to go back to the dark ages of kids living there. Who cares? About me, like if I put my hand up at school and say I'm hungry, that's going to be neglected. And nobody's going to respond. I look at it differently.
1: Sure. I is this, this just is, is this just people trying to avoid work? Do you think like not well, wanting to see it because of the hard work of actually helping a child? Or
2: well, you know, that's interesting. It's like it's like this um, this movement. The the government is too involved in your life. All right. Okay. Now. I, I'm an adult, and if I were at risk, I know that I could figure out how to find help or, you know, I have a voice, uh, and, and maybe I need help with my voice, and that's true for people of all ages, but a child doesn't have a voice, yes. okay? The child really is, is, is invisible until they start preschool or school. I mean, we don't know what's going on with that child until somebody sees the kid, right? Right. um and uh and so therefore you end up with with saying why not use that opportunity to swoop into that household with a positive attitude of how do i help you and um and then doing what's needed and for that kid to be safe to me that's where society comes in that's where we need to build villages in the community whereby the people that are living there are paying attention to the others around them and figuring out what they need um, I mean I can give you an example uh, years ago the Department of Children and Family Services DCFS brought a mother and three kids into my office she was from um, Arkansas she had gotten on a bus in Arkansas to, come, to run away from home because she was being abused at her house she was all 16 years of age and she got on a bus, and she was coming to L.A. She had no money. um, She's sitting on the bus, and this lovely 46-year-old Hispanic man who didn't speak English was sitting next to her and shared his lunch with her. And when she got off the bus, she had no place to go. He took her home, and they lived as as common-law, husband and wife, for five or six years before I saw them. They were reported because she has three kids, almost no language between them, because English and, and Spanish. They had She had not been to the doctor with the kids. She didn't know how to do that. And she had three children and no stroller, and she needed to get to the, to the store to buy food. And uh, so she took the baby, put a a, a, a a soft tie around the ankle and tied him in the crib. While she took the other two kids, two hands, two kids, so she could get across the street safely with the kids. Meanwhile, the child's screaming, DCFS is called, and they're going to take all three kids away. What would fix that for that mother? Several things. No more isolation. But how about a double stroller? Yeah. Instead of foster placement, all she needed was access to services. But right away, she needed a double stroller. So my recommendation was, what are you doing?
1: Right, right. Instead of making her wrong for it, just help her out. Yeah, I right. totally get so, it.
2: So you know, Eric, that the the the, the motto at, at, at VIP <laughs> is, how can I help you? Whether it's kids coming in the door, or whether it's foster parents coming back, or whether it's the ongoing mental health services, the basement of this building is chock-a-block full of clothes <laughs> yeah. and food and other things. Plus, we have a support group called heart that raises money for us that helps us pay rent and utilities and 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 basic needs i mean orthodontia plastic surgery all that stuff that goes with it so that kids have a chance it's it's not turning them away because it's neglect and somebody's poor it's saying oh you're ringing my doorbell and i'm going to answer the door and say how can i be helpful rather than being uh, punitive.
1: How yeah. how, uh, how how uh, do you think that? So, has DCFS gotten better or worse, or is it also in the bell shaped curve over <laughs> the years in assisting you with this? Because they're usually, or at least for a large portion of the patients seen at the Violence Intervention Program, they're bringing them in. Has it gotten better? Has it gotten worse? Or is it the U shaped curve that you're talking about? Well, right? you
2: know, there was yeah. a dramatic change in how things happen and wonderful change that happened in this county um, years ago when I realized that I had to be in partnership with them because they figured out that they could call me and that I would answer their questions. And that was like 24 hours a day. So I said, let's get outstation social workers in the clinic so that they can help getting the people in and help aid in communication. That was step one. That was a huge step forward in getting kids in and seeing and talking to the social workers and working on helping families and all that. The second thing we did, which was um, formed a system in this county uh, that worked directly with DCFS called the hub system. And that came out of death review here in LA. And uh, sadly, I used to be there every month for a death review of children who'd had untoward deaths, usually at the hand of a caretaker. And um, so I'm sitting there and uh, in this death review case, and they brought up the case of Lance Helms, who was two years old and killed by his dad. And his grandmother was in court almost every month with pictures of all the bruises and injuries that he had. And the judge kept sending him back to the father and uh, the grandmother kept saying, he is going to kill this kid. Just leave him there. He'll kill him eventually. And that's what happened. And um, so I'm sitting there looking at this. And somebody said, well, did somebody ask the judge, like, why was he sending this little kid home with all these injuries? And he said, I didn't know where to send the send him to make sure I had the right answer. So I stood up. I'm sitting next to the coroner. And I said, I'm out of here. And I went and wrote a grant and got $1.2 million and started the first 24-hour center in L.A. that focused on both mental health, health, and healing. Let's just talk about you know healing. But that became uh, – so there were three centers, and now there's six centers. So it became a place where you're open. We're open – continue to be open 24 hours a day. Always there's going to be an answer. Somebody with expertise is going to make an answer and we're gonna ask about mental health, and we're gonna ask about how we can keep you safe. So that was great. And then <clears throat> the lawyers for the county came to me and said, um, "You, ne- thank you very much for doing that, we appreciate it. You need to be able to hold DCFS accountable for getting the kids in to be seen. So a couple, a, a family, two families had given VIP, um, well, they. Eventually, we got eight hundred thousand uh, dollars when they, uh, in their wills. And I used the money to build an electronic system to, to intake all of the referrals from DCFS. So we could monitor it. we knew exactly what happened, and no kid could slip through the cracks. But what happened was that that built this partnership with DCFS. But the fact is the, the, the fact of starting this, ended up uh, because now we knew where every kid was and knew every kid that was coming in. And that partnership was so strong, was, was so strong that we could uh, uh, guarantee that kids had access to the, to a, a, to an assessment. Now that was great. That was the peak of this, the bell-shaped curve. Right. And now we have, you know, we found out that by doing that, we cut child deaths in the County of LA from the peak of about 60 per year at the hands of caretakers, so less than five.
3: So right. it's an
2: amazing, yeah. amazing impact by holding people accountable. Uh, and uh, that, that was, was a phenomenal uh, moment in time to realize that. And it's, to, and it's effective, it's amazing, it, it improves communication, you know what happens, we can monitor people. That was great. Now that was the peak. Now you're coming down the other side where people are saying, maybe we shouldn't get involved in people's lives. Right. Now, I don't want to be involved in your life, to be honest. I don't want to be the person that's taking your child away. But I want to be the person that says you need help. And if you need it, I'm not going to tell you how you live your life, but I'm going to insist that a community. Again, this is a community. That the community gets involved in sustaining you. All right. I mean, it's hard to be a single mom with five kids, and inadequate income. Um, you know, and 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 be good at it. And a refrigerator that's broken. Maybe you need some help.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm curious because I think this ties in pretty directly to sort of the, uh, the abortion uh, conversation that we're having on right now, because I'm wondering as abortion becomes more and more restricted across the country, how is that going to affect this area? Because I mean, you're obviously going to have a lot of parents without with kids that they probably didn't want or that they don't know what to do with. How is this going to feed into what you do and make it, conceivably a lot more difficult
2: well it's a great question i think the individuals that are going to be most impacted by all of this uh, anti-abortion you don't have you know no personal choice and so the people who are going to be most affected are the poor yeah because those who have money can always figure out where to go even if they had to go out of the country so they're going to be affected the most. And without resources, it's like, I mean, let's look at it this way. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I have three kids. I raised I always had respite care. I could always get somebody to come and help me. I, I, I you know, I, could, I was working nights. I had three kids when I was a resident. I mean, talk about being tired. You could be just worn out. But I always had resources to, to make sure that I could take care of that. We're talking about and people who don't have the resources that are in poverty that do need our help, and by making by by saying you're going to have five kids instead of two because you're not going to have an option to say two's enough, right? Uh, you right. can't even get. You know, and I'm waiting for them to to ban uh, birth control. They're uh,
1: yeah, they're trying to right.
2: I mean, like, so we we end up making the the worst possible situation for uh the poor and it's it's so what we what are we going to see is what we saw verse before roe versus wade is that we are going to end up having more and more kids being harmed um, out of sheer frustration what causes people to act out not everything is a malicious i'm planning on harming my child it yeah. is, I am irritated I'm tired I don't have food I don't have a refrigerator and and the kid gets hit yeah so, it's just
1: it's, un, it's an unplanned response it's just a it's a it's a breakdown
2: it's a breakdown so that that does concern me along with everything having to do with the rights women's rights and abilities to achieve what happens what happens to to young kids in their teens that are raped and they end up, you're going to force them to have this baby. What, what are you, what are you doing? I mean, they have no future then their future is gone. Because if they're poor, nobody's going to help them go to school. Nobody's going to help them achieve. It, it's, it's over for them. Um, you know, I've had pregnant kids in my clinic as young as 10. Um, and uh, without a therapeutic abortion, they would, uh, they would essentially have not survived.
0: Yeah, well, kind of, kind of segueing a bit into sort of your work with FASD, uh, which is, I know, something that you've worked on pretty tirelessly mm-hmm. for a long time. I'm curious, you know, I mean, even though FASD is more common than something like autism, there are still Weirdly, and I'm shocked by this, there are still evidently fringe deniers, like people out there who deny that this even exists or is an actual thing, which ties into what I was talking about earlier with, uh, you know, i had done some research into Lyme disease, which is another, you know, area where people just, for some reason, don't want to believe that it exists. And and I'm curious, hasn't that ship already sailed? Isn't that science settled?
2: (laughs) Well, Yes, I mean to individuals that are paying attention. Again, it goes back to what I said about child sex abuse. Um, was the idea you have to you have to know that it happens. You have to accept that it happens in order to make the diagnosis. And uh, making the diagnosis as you know, I mean, as recently as two weeks ago, I was told by one of the leaders in health services in L.A. Why make the diagnosis if you can't cure it? You know. Have, oh. Being born to a mom that drank in the first trimester, etc., of, of pregnancy uh, and caused, you know, whether it's a lot of alcohol causing severe brain damage or a smaller amount causing some brain damage, it does have an incredibly bad effect on the kids, on the infant's brain. And I didn't realize that. I, I knew what fetal alcohol syndrome was because I was a pediatrician. But, I mean, I didn't realize how desperate it was until I started looking at all the kids that were failing foster care or foster care was failing them. And I realized that the majority of them had fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. They were on that, 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 um, shirt that curve and that so many of them were the ones that were ending up in juvenile justice, which we'll talk about later and uh, in foster care and on the streets. I mean, one, probably one third to one half, I think it's probably higher. I think it's 60%. But, of the people living on the streets of this country were born to moms that drank when they were pregnant. And they are also, there's a great book out, and I'll have to send you that resource, on this. the killers that are going into schools and shooting elementary school kids. Fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. It causes a brain damage that basically is, is irretrievable, Unless you start re-educating when they're little. And your question is, we ignore that. We don't want to talk about, about alcohol effect because it's legal. you know. Yeah, yeah. We, we will talk about other things to get money to start a clinic to deal with this after I realized that all these kids I was seeing that were failing foster care because I'm into healing, so come back, let me see you on an ongoing basis. They're coming back, and I realized they had that. So, I mean, I'm trying to figure out what we're going to do to heal it. And people are saying, oh, my God, don't go there. But it happened to me. It wasn't what I thought about it when I started the clinic, but it was what happened in this clinic. was, oh, my God, this is desperate. This is an epidemic. You can imagine after the coronavirus how big an epidemic we're going to have now. Um, oh. That you end up realizing that if you don't diagnose this and treat it in the first five years of life, it's not you're going to have a very hard time. We're, we're investigating it and we're doing research, but it is something that we won't be talking about in the weeks to come, how it colors everything from juvenile justice to foster care, to group homes, to uh, serial killers. To, and why does everybody not want to know about it? Very interesting They because it is legal so everybody can drink. And let's say you have a nice middle-class family, husband and wife are, in a, are, in, are thinking about getting a divorce, having a huge, big, ongoing battle at home. Mom binge drinks. She's in the first trimester. She binge drinks over a weekend. It happens to be just the wrong time when the brain's developing. She gets an FASD kit. We don't want her to feel bad. Okay, that's, the, that's what they tell me. I, we don't want the stigma. And I'm like, I want the stigma.
1: Right, like doesn't don't so one of the things that I I know from having from working with you is that this often gets misdiagnosed as oppositional defiant disorder, where you're like oh. bad kid, and that itself is a that's a mess because then you're that, not actually seeing the problem.
2: Well, it's, it's ADHD. It's all kinds of other diagnosis. Depends where you are in the country. Some people think it's a, a part of the autism spectrum. No, it's FASD, and it causes mental. Uh, illness of such a profound degree that it's associated with acting out in a violent way which is why it gets a misdiagnosed as a defiant disorder because the kids are impossible, they set fires, they kill animals, they're dangerous and um, you know, so when you say we're going to close all of the all of the places that we put them and we're going to let the kids go into homes I'm just kind of wondering how in the world we think that's going to work I mean, how how do we I guarantee somebody that they're going to be safe. Fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is no joke. I have a friend that ended up adopting two of them. The first one was severely affected. The second one less so. She ended up, I mean, I was telling her, if you got a kid with FASD, well, our therapists are telling us she was adopted. She's got attachment disorder. No, no, no. You You adopted her at three days. She doesn't have an attachment disorder. She has FASD. Well, eventually... Um, they had to put her in a lockdown in Wyoming because we don't lock anybody up in California. It's against the law. So they went to Wyoming where she was eventually kicked out at age 18 for attacking uh, one, of the, um, one of the workers there. But in the interim, she would come home for the holidays. And a very affluent, very overachieving family. And uh, they would, everybody in the family, except for this child, would sleep in the master bedroom with the parents with a door under the handle to get in there to keep the kid out because they were afraid she would kill them in the night. I mean, the fact is, is yes, it is an incredible stigma that somebody drank and had, had a child. If we don't recognize that, they continue to be at risk for themselves and to everybody else around them.
0: Great. Yeah, I this whole like stigma conversation I just find to be so ridiculous. I mean, and we've had I, I, I obviously a totally different area, but I think back to like when the very first time I went to Germany on vacation, right? Mm-hmm. You know, what is it everybody thinks about Germany? Obviously, they think the Holocaust, they think World War II. and I just remember like being so like shocked that I would be walking down the street and out there on the street in front of every single home that had once belonged to a Jewish person. There was a plaque that was outside of that home, like honoring that person, acknowledging what happened, mm-hmm. acknowledging, you know, what Germany did. And it was like, it was this idea of like, we're going to make sure that, yeah. you know, all of the facts are out there. We're not trying yeah. to hide anything. We're not trying to bury anything. Yeah. And like if that falls. It's like the whole stigma conversation. It's like, yeah, no one wants to be no one wants to be told that they drank too much and irreparably harmed their child. But what's the alternative? <laughs> like the alternative is terrifying.
2: Well, you right. know, it's interesting. It's like uh, smoking in restaurants. You know, we've sort of come to the point where we, if somebody's smoking in a restaurant, we look at them a bit askance, right? Yeah. I mean, although you know we th- there's going to be a stigma attached to whatever you know the idea of smoking we have a stigma attached to smoking now we have a tremendous thank god a, a decline in people smoking it's if if we don't if we don't do um if we don't pay attention to all of this uh you know nothing's going to change so it's kind of like uh i'll give you you know an example it was like um yeah, uh, in, in I think it was in Florida, it's Parkland where the where the kid that had been a student there came in and yeah. and shot like nineteen students and and, and teachers. Uh, and so I was, you know, I, I'm in a in a discussion group here about FASD in California and the group is saying, um, Astra, don't you dare say anything about that. Uh, don't I we don't want you here talking to them about FASD because I'm looking at this kid going, Holy sh- Toledo it's He meets all the criteria, you know, adopted into a family, has the features. Look, I said, he's got FASD. And um, they're saying, oh, please, we don't want the stigma. Don't say anything. And so one of the the members of the group ended up testifying at his sentencing hearing that he has FASD to make sure he didn't get on to death row. I mean, the, the fact is, is that, yeah, there is stigma attached to it. How do how do we not raise awareness uh, so that individuals adopting these kids into their homes or whatever don't understand that they need to have them assessed and get help for them as quickly as possible so that they're not going to be dealing with this when they turn twelve, thirteen, fourteen years of age?
1: How, how you know just to bring it back to the DCFS focus for a second, how is DCFS dealing with FASD in their management of the children in their care?
2: Well, there's, a, there's two approaches to it, Eric. Good question. One approach is, please don't tell anybody that this kid was born to an alcoholic mom because All we right. want to get the kid adopted or out Place, of the household. Yeah. That's one approach. Um, and Well, there's three approaches. And then their second approach is, can we bring these kids in to get them assessed and treated as soon as possible? So there's a sense of awareness about that. Um, the kids in the system that are failing, that are chronic, chronically involved in the system, that fail all the time, of which there's, you know, there's thousands. Um, they, uh, we're trying to figure out how to support them better through both therapy and peer support. And uh, DCFS just depends on the worker. But um, right, right. a lot of those kids don't, you know, you know, Eric, a lot of them fail foster care. So they're just bouncing. They right. just yeah. bounce everywhere. They, yeah. they go to 15 different foster homes before they're 18. And then they graduate from, being in foster care and they end up on the streets,
1: right? And so I guess the avoidance, the, the avoidance behavior doesn't really work at all. It's just it's in fact it's it's guaranteeing a failure. If the parents, if right. the foster parents right. don't know, you're guaranteeing a failure because how they, yes.
2: How exactly. do they
1: provide care if they don't know that the child has that? And and I know from just having worked there. I'm not I'm not a healthcare worker. I'm an IT guy. I know how difficult those patients can be because there's such a there's such a difference in how what works for this one doesn't work for this one Mm -hmm. and it's really getting that individualized program together avoiding it is uh just putting off that likely long and difficult process to assess that that sounds crazy but
2: it's a tragic uh piece eric when you think about it because if we actually guaranteed i mean we set parameters and we tested every child and looked, and looked at the ch- kids that were the highest risk and followed them and began therapy, we probably could in fact bend uh, their trajectory into being an adult incarcerated for violent crimes. I mean, we could, we could do that, uh, you know, we could start very early, but the fact is, is we can't keep waiting. You know, we have to sort of begin to make it into a, 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 a national agenda that we are actually going to start looking at kids. For example, I'm not saying this is the perfect solution, but there are very few markers at birth except if they're born to a mom who's on drugs. So we test kids when they're born to see if they have if they have drugs on board, right? I'm I'm just saying, okay, if they're using drugs, there's a good chance they're using alcohol. So right. why don't we take all those kids and put them into a clinic and follow them? so that they are uh, so we begin at age two to say oh okay we're going to start doing uh intensive therapy with the family and with the kid so that we begin to retrain the brain because it's a brain damage we're retraining the brain so that the the kid will in fact be able to go to school and achieve and 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 be accepted uh in a society as a nonviolent, productive human being
0: right Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that makes sense to me, but uh, then again, but you know, I'm curious, I mean, it drives me crazy because we're talking, we talk so much in society these days about mental health, right? It feels Mm -hmm. like the last few years, especially predominantly on the left, but you're hearing a lot more discussions about, Mm -hmm. you know, mental health and mental health treatment and making sure that everybody, you know, is Mm -hmm. taken care of in that regard. I never, I can't think of one time I've heard anyone mention FASD in that discussion.
2: Nope. Well, you see, we have an advantage right now because we can actually run and hide behind the coronavirus, yeah. and yeah. Uh, and I mean a lot of people have been running and hiding behind the coronavirus for the last three years, uh, but we can we've been at least acknowledging it nationally that has caused a mental health crisis, and I personally think that now we should. Go ahead and take advantage of the coronavirus because we have another epidemic, which is called FASD in this country, and say we need to enhance mental health services across the board for everyone because we know that non FASD kids and adolescents and adults are in heightened need of of therapy and and services. So let's just say, let's make sure that everybody has access to it and we're going to look at it. Uh, and and take the stigma away from getting mental health services by saying, wow, the coronavirus had a tremendous impact on people's mental health. And um, I, I think it's a great uh, people who are embarrassed to admit that they have to have they have to go and see a psychiatrist or a psychologist. A great, great opportunity to um, to uh, blame it on something else. Right. I'm curious. What are what's some practical advice
0: that you would have? Let's say that there's a parent out there who is concerned that maybe you know they've adopted a child or something, and they're concerned that maybe this child has FASD. What are some what are some actual like things that they can look for to make that decision if they want to have them go evaluated?
2: Well, so first off, as I I we think of be amateur detectives in some way, and I think they should go online and find the resource that's closest to them. That's actually diagnosing and and potentially treating FASD so that they get the kid assessed. So they don't assume facts not in evidence. It's like saying, I personally think it's like the same thing about childhood cancers, et cetera, if you don't entertain the diagnosis and look at it, but you look at it with experts. I don't think it's something that I want a bunch of amateur people saying, I think that kid has FASD. Sure. Right. There's a certain facial features. To kids who are on the on the higher end of the spectrum, that you can look at and say this kid looks like they have FASD. Um, that you know you, but most doctors, a lot, and most people in in the field that should know better are not really eager to make that diagnosis. It's a little tough to get them to think about it. So I, if I'm um, looking at at children, um, if I were looking at my Neighbors' children and they were concerned. I know I would send them to uh, uh, see see a clinic that actually provides an assessment. And uh, I mean. I, as as Eric knows, you know, I, I haven't done this for a while through coronavirus, but I used to go away to Palm Springs for a week every year to sleep, right? Because I'm overworked.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. I,
2: I do too many things and I've, I'm going to go and yeah. sleep for a week. So I'm coming back from Palm Springs and I'm on the 210 freeway and I get a call from a friend that, uh, from years ago who says, I think the two kids I adopted have FASD. I looked it up online and you're the person to talk to. So would you mind coming and talking to us? I said, well, I'll come, but I want your husband to be there at the same time, if you think that. The short version of this is I walk into their house, walk into their family room, and there's pictures of these two kids that they adopted and that they adore. And they adopted in infancy and they lived in an affluent, hyper-educated, Multiple psychologists, multiple pediatricians, etc. And I walk in, sit down in the den, look at the pictures of these kids at different ages that are on the wall on the on you know on the furniture there, and I my heart sinks because they all look like they have FASD.
1: Right. Yeah. Like
2: it. and it's it's, it's it's
1: eye positioning, it's fa- right, yeah, it, it's, it's facial yeah.
2: features, which I don't. I'm not gonna. I don't want to teach people to make that diagnosis themselves. Right. Sorry. But, but the irony and the saddest part about this was, you know, you're looking at them and my basic sense to them was, do you have a safe room? Because they're saying to me, our 16 year old boy is trying to kill us. Oh. And I said, do you have a safe room? That was my most urgent thing was safety. And we talked about that. And I then hooked them up with resources with my clinic and tr- treatment. And I went out. I went out to my car, and I'm getting ready to back out of the driveway. I roll down the window. Father standing there, tears running down his face, saying, "Astrid, I just want you to know how much I love my boy." Yeah. And yet, you know, he's trying to kill his dad. Yeah. And it was. It, it's just, you know, it sounds terrible and for everybody. And I was like, "Oh, how do I capture that? Oh my goodness, what if my kids are." We need to be able to identify and treat and acknowledge that, that, that we can, in fact, make a difference. And we do make a difference. And the families that we're seeing that have that make a difference. But think about it. When we develop a system to deal with these kids that are in foster care, failing foster care, or incarcerated, and we don't entertain the diagnosis that they may be impacted by uh, FASD, your system that you're building is going to fail because these kids are so volatile that they set fire to whatever system they're in. So you right. can build a new orphanage in high desert, which is certainly happening. But if you don't acknowledge the need to diagnose, your orphanage will go up in smoke, whether it's literally or figuratively.
0: Right. I'm curious, what is the success rate if you're able to get to these kids at you know the age when treatment is really when you're supposed to start? What is the success rate of being able to get them to that functional state where they're moving past these issues?
2: I don't think we know the answer to that. I think okay. nobody's really tried treating it or, or really uh, giving that information uh, on, on an ongoing basis. VIP is the only place in California that both diagnoses and treats Wow. The only one in this huge in, state. The like, enormity, of, enormity of California. Right. Because people say, they told me when I started the clinic, the, that part of the clinics here. I mean, there are a bunch of clinics here. I don't when I, We'll get into all of them eventually. Um, when I started, I said, don't do it because you're going to fail. And I'm like, I don't know how to explain this to you, but Astrid happens to all <laughs> have doesn't deal well with failure. I don't sit at the loser's table uh yeah. i want to be a success i want to see to it these kids have a chance what i'm hearing back as we're looking at this and beginning to look at how their families are reporting is that the families are addicted to us because the kids are getting better we're looking yeah. at at neurofeedback right now uh, on these kids to see if we can unscramble the brain and helpfully get them more uh, attuned to being helpful and not being so violent. So you ask me that in, in, in a couple of years, I think I'll know better because we're actually, actually tackling it. And, yeah. and most people have not done that.
0: Um, so basically, so I'm assuming that if you live in a small rural place, let's say you live in a small community in Iowa or <laughs> Arkansas, you're probably not going to have access to many places that can diagnose this.
2: No, I, I, I think what I, I would like to suggest that they do, and you could maybe give them this information, is they can go online and go to where we are, um, Eric. They can hook into that and get right. a, 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 um, a part of our website to log into, which is something you and I will be talking about tomorrow, uh, that they can log into, that they can get the basic information about that And we can begin to become more of a clearinghouse of information for the country where they will find the resources closest to them that are willing to deal with FASD. It is a subject and a diagnosis that most people avoid. That's all I can tell you. It's like, I don't want to make this diagnosis and I'm telling you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's, Again, I use the word mind boggling so much, but it's that that people would rather ignore the actual issue, put the lives of these kids in jeopardy all for just what fluff just for like ridiculous reasons. Like I, Mm -hmm. I, I, it happens so much. I feel like in the medical field, not just in this area, but in a lot of other areas. And I just, it's mind boggling to me. I don't understand how anybody thinks that's sustainable.
2: Well, I'm gonna, you know, I know we're gonna run out of time here, and i my basic, my basic message is in in our world right now, and what we're dealing with with high risk youth and and violence against women and the abortion issues and uh, people's rights and, and all of that. We as a population can no longer rely on the intelligence and the commitment by those that we've elected to, to lead us. We actually have to be responsible for the people that live around us and begin to say, you know what, I think uh, you need some help with that kid. Um, it's it's like a, a fascinating idea that people do not want to make a diagnosis that they cannot instantaneously cure. And FASD is not cured with antibiotics, and it's not cured with chemotherapy. It's cured with a, a long-time uh, dedicated uh, uh, intervention by therapists that are trained, and when we ignore it and say, "Oh, it's too difficult for me to face," we're we're never gonna we're never gonna get any kind of uh, of outcomes that are going to be life saving for the kids and for the families.
1: Yeah, right. Ignoring yeah. it's going to make the mess bigger. So I I, I do know I that mean, with that there's, particular there's, syndrome. Yeah. So, you know, just to address this, the other thing about time. So, yeah, we're close to the end of the time, but we're going to do this monthly, right, Dr. (laughs) Hager? Let's do it monthly. We're going to figure out
2: some different topics that we're going to talk about. And, um, I mean, there are some very important things that we can talk about for parents as well. And I've sort of resuscitated in my mind a book that I wrote some time ago, but didn't actually get it published because I got too busy probably. But the idea of the book was that the world is an unfenced swimming pool. So the idea that we don't want kids to be afraid of water, but we don't want them to drown. Uh, Because when you talk about uh, preventing child abuse and a a stranger danger and all that, people would say, well, I don't want my kid to be afraid of, of other people, but I want them in my mind the world is an unfenced swimming pool. I don't want them to drown either. So I want them to be able to know when they're safe. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And we'll talk about possible solutions. I have some ideas, and maybe we'll talk about this next time, of how to revamp the Department of Children and Family Services in a way that provides the services in the community for the families, for the kids right up front, from preschool all the way to the the end of high school and that those who can walk to an elementary school, how do we then reorganize a community around safety and around uh, nonviolence and uh, around a future for every child? That's the thing I want to talk about.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. I look forward to more conversations.
2: I do too. Thank you guys.
0: No, thank thank you, you, Dr. Hager.
1: The whole situation with with uh, what's going on with the county lawsuits is it's it's such a mess for them. And the thing is, is that I think I think the type of breakdown that you see with that is what happens when people realize that it's not going to be easy to get it done, to get it yeah. fixed. And so, in this case, it's not easy to deal with children who have FASD. It's not easy to deal with the situation where there that, that it's oftentimes poverty creating the mess right that is causing all the issues with these children and so like she said it, is it is it just even to take away a child just because their parents are poor no what's just is finding a way to work that out but then again there are people in society that don't believe in helping people out like that they would ask well why did you have kids well maybe they're not educated it's just it's
0: well what's a- funny too is like when i when i was going down my sort of research dive into this and I mentioned it in our conversation, I was shocked at how many deniers there are. Yeah. Like how many like medical doctors, like scientists and researchers. And, and I was, and and I said this off, off recording, but, and it came on the heels of me just watching that documentary. It was called the quiet epidemic, which is about, Lyme, Lyme disease and yeah. how people, a lot of prominent doctors still won't recognize chronic Lyme disease. And um, and we talk about, you know, FASD and like misdiagnoses, which is also like, you know, people have Lyme disease. They're being diagnosed as having fibromyalgia, chronic right. fatigue syndrome. All right. of these conditions that we've said for years are fake conditions. Are fake. Yeah. Well, they may not be fake. They may all just be no, one no, condition. I, right, they all right. may just be one condition that we're just refusing to believe is an actual thing and it happens they may, all or, across or, or, right,
1: they may be part of a set of conditions that can throw your body into a lesser performing space right like when you have a certain yeah. disease load yeah you're only going to get this level of performance of pain level of pain control of energetic or you know the the ability to get up and get out of bed your energy levels will just go down once you reach a certain disease level it's it's yeah. it's and it could be Lyme disease and fibromyalgia and right that cause it just at differing levels or having had COVID as another example of something that's popping up as one of those permanent disease load type States, which, you know, may just be again, that mess, but you have to be able to look at it to, to be able to see it. And FAST is something no one wants to
0: look at. Well, moving on to next week. Um, Barring any unforeseen occurrences, and as you know, uh, unforeseen occurrences in the podcast world can't help, but uh, we will finally be joined by former Alabama Governor Don Siegelman. Uh, I've got a book to recommend if you want to read it. It's called Stealing Our Democracy, How the Political Assassination of a Governor Threatens Our Nation. Uh, This is actually written by Don Siegelman himself. For folks who don't know, Don Siegelman was a a one-term governor in the state of Alabama had a lot of potential on the national scene. Like a lot of people were talking about him even posing a possible presidential run risk to Republicans. And so Karl Rove swooped in, uh, mounted this concerted attack against Siegelman, ended up getting him convicted of something that all politicians do. Uh, but he got convicted and sent to prison for multiple years for this. And this effectively – completely demolished his political aspirations and future. And uh, I'm someone who was uh, one of Don Siegelman's constituents at the time. I remember him being a breath of fresh air for the state of Alabama. We don't get many Democratic governors there. So when we get them, it's kind of an anomaly. And so uh, I'm very excited to talk talk to Governor Siegelman, talk about how politics were weaponized in his case, but also about how politics are being weaponized today which uh, we, I feel like we read about or see on a daily basis.
1: Right. No, that would be interesting. It's funny, is I'm pretty sure years ago, when he was in the middle of his mess, uh, I actually <laughs> was working for a company and we did, I did it for his daughter here in L.A. Oh which wow, is crazy. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I. It was Dana Sibelman, and I'm pretty sure her dad was. But I, I I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm to try to remember that. But yeah, it'll be interesting. I think this is a great guest too because um, the conversation that I'm sure we'll have that that you've recounted to me about how he dealt with being in prison, I think, is a great way to to, to deal with it because uh, he doesn't blame anybody, right? So yeah, it's nice. Yeah,
0: yeah. it's. Uh, I mean, well, he blames the people that it's clearly well, sure. I'm saying. Who, who you know. But yes, he does Yeah, he's 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 definitely tried to, as we say in the South, make chicken salad out of chicken shit. <laughs> and um, which I appreciate. But um, so, yeah, join us next week for that. Um, the Center Clueless podcast is produced by Ryan Verrill. Hi, Ryan. Please visit us at centerclueless.com for more information or find us on the socials at Center Clueless. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends to tune in. Seriously rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It actually really helps in how we show up in the algorithm. Uh, if you have a question, comment, or criticism, uh, email us at centerclueless.com, or excuse me, centerclueless at gmail.com. This is also the email that you'll use if we completely just fuck something up and got it wrong. Please let us know, and we will actually uh, talk about the correction on the next episode. Um, great episode. Great times. Yeah. These Until- are good,
1: Billy Ray. I'm so happy, man. Yep. I appreciate it again. And we're going
0: to try not to fuck up the next one. So uh, until next (laughs) time, whether you're left, right, or somewhere in the center, we hope you are a little less clueless, just like us.